Today's episode of Nerd or She Wrote is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour. With Mo DeKeel and Seth Partnow. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to the Nerder She Wrote Podcast on the Back to Back Podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. We got Mo, we got Seth. What's up, guys? Not much. Yo. It took me a minute to find the are mute you, button. It took me. I was like, ah. <laughs> are you? Are you guys? Are you guys scratching out the days on the wall? No, I'm not. Are we at no. that point? <laughs> I'm not there yet, but I am just noticing as we go through. Like, oh, my hair is getting longer and longer. And and it, with the lighting, because we're actually recording. Well, at least Mo still has his video on. Uh, with this very soft lighting and the Skype blurred background, um, and your mustache. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You def- look, yeah. <laughs> definitely doing. You look mustache. like it's like 1975. <laughs> I got. I, I got time. I figured. Got inspired. Looking at the walls and stuff. I said, <laughs> you do. You do have a little bit of a Fredo Corleone thing going on right now. Oh, wait oh, till yeah. it get, wait till it gets in a little better because then I'm gonna look like homeboy from uh, Narcos Mexico. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> you look like Felix. a guy. You you look like a guy hanging out in the nosebleeds in Rocky. Oh, that'd be a good one too. You know who I want to look like? I want to look like the 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 dude in was it Rocky Two? Like the was kind of like a mob boss or, or like a loan shark or something. You know who I'm talking about? He was in the crowd during the fight. I can't remember his name. Um, but he had a, we, we got to get you a gold chain. That's or, what, that's what's missing. And and my goal in terms of Godfather character is not Fredo, but Chichi. Oh, Don Don Cheech. <laughs> Cheechy, a puerto. Yeah. The, uh, Frankie Pantangeli's oh, guy. Oh, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. The guy, the guy who in the congressional hearings who's like, yeah, we had a lot of buffers. A lot of buffers. That, that guy. Right. You know, just, just yeah. Have it, um, you, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the, the goal. This is what happens when I have uh, too much time on my hands. <laughs> so speaking of too much time on your hands, uh, you've actually been going over tape from this season uh, because you're a little bit more optimistic about basketball coming back than we are mo what has surprised you that you didn't pick up or at least you didn't feel as strongly about while we were you know live watching basketball well i i have a piece coming out at some point on zion and the one thing that i just didn't really catch on was he is fairly bad at defensively and like i don't mean in the sense of like Oh, he's not, um, it, this is, this is some of its IQ stuff. Some of it's just, you know, I look at it and I go, he has no sense of what to do. And a lot of times it looks like he has no urgency after it's clear what he should do. And I'm just kind of like, that's got me a little bit worried about Zion. How, how much of that do you think might be conditioning? I mean, he, he, you know, he was injured and then came back kind of late. Didn't really have a chance to get into game shape. It's, I, I don't, I don't know how much of. The, I think some of it, of course, it does. Conditioning does play a role in it, but some, dude, it's not even conditioning as much as sometimes it's just him just flat out not moving, not not just literally standing in no man's land and not moving. 
Like sometimes I'm just like, to me, that's not conditioning. That's just me. Like, I don't even know the last time I saw him in a defensive stance. Yeah, I got to, I mean, this is something that, that kind of towards the end of, of what we were watching, it was something that I was noticing also is that, you know, the, uh, there is a, a dearth of awareness, I would say. And that's, you know, that's not super unusual for a rookie, but it's, it, you combine that with the fact that he just doesn't, like, he's had one or two, like, wow blocks, but that was, you, you would, you, you know, it was build. There's a little bit of, like, that Andrew Wiggins thing where you see the physical profiles, like, oh, well, how bad can he be defensively because of these tools? But he, he's never, he, or he, he is not in the position to make use of those tools as frequently or close to as you would think. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's just, you know, not really having the first part of the season to understand scheme and, and maybe not having the, the fundamental base to work with and it'll get better. Or just like having that Amari Stoudemire thing of just like not knowing where to look. Mm-hmm. Um and then combine that with, I think there is a conditioning element to it as well, where, which makes it even worse because he, he then when he it is clear what he should be doing, he's he doesn't have the burst to to go because he because because the, the conditioning isn't there. So it's I think it's some of all of those. I mean, so rookies are generally bad at defense anyway, right? Right. So they're you know, I definitely want to make sure to give him the benefit of the doubt, but there, I mean. That stood out to me in real time that it was bad, but I think I just counted a lot more on the being out of shape, trying to catch up to the team that's already, you know, whatever they were at 40 something games into the season and and get on the same page with a bunch of guys that he really hadn't played with. I, I don't think we'll know if he's any good until what year three, maybe I think he, just because of the style of defense he needs to play. I think even longer. I, I honestly think like year four or five. You know, it's going to be an adjustment period. I mean, plus he's going to have to be able to guard, you know, switch on the guards and 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 handle that a little better and and things like that. It's going to take a while for the adjustment side. And I was and and I am kind of careful, Dave, along with you in terms of like, look, he is nineteen. He only played nineteen mm-hmm. games. Like, there's there is a growth and growing process. But it's something I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on in that sense. When I look at it, it was just. It really stood out to me. And the other thing that kind of jumped out was just like, you know, he has pretty low rebounding numbers as well. Um, that that's what I was gonna I was gonna point at that too. He's got he I mean he's got very he's he's rebounding like a mediocre rebounding small forward, and like that's something you would that's 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 surprising mediocre steal and block rates as well. And those were those were from a stat standpoint. Those were the those kind of areas were the reasons why. From a statistical modeling standpoint, he was like this outlandish prospect. Um, so I think now, and, and apologies for cutting off there, Mo, but I think that I mean that that to me, if I'm going to hang a narrative on that, that points a little bit towards conditioning because you know you a guy with a guy with his just physical ability is going to get more than like 14 percent of defensive rebounds. He just is right. Well, I mean, but we thought the same thing about Wiggins too. But Wiggins didn't really rebound, yeah, that year in Kansas either. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like it, at Duke, he was like that was his ability, right? Like we were looking at it, going like this is great, and he has that. Zion's got that great ability to to catch and 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 go and bust out and and get make a, a play here and there in transition. So 
it, it, it was surprising, and, and it is interesting, Seth. The other thing, too, is he, he is still a pretty good offensive rebounder. You know, it's it's the defensive yeah. stuff where it's like, wow, this is really surprising how how bad it is. And that's the thing that that kind of just, just caught me off guard. Like, you, 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 during the season, you know, you kind of – you're watching so many things, it's, it's hard to kind of be able to dive into one guy. But getting to dive in now during this time, I was – there were just some things that made me – kind of raise my eyebrow. And again, I I do think, I mean, he is, he was instantly dropped in as like the, like a focal point of their offense. And like the way he gets baskets is kind of, I think, exertion heavy. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that fair to say? I mean, he, you know, he, he is getting to the basket. He's getting his own rebounds. He's, he's, you know, brushing guys off. And I think that for a guy, again, if there is a, a, even if it's a, just a game shape issue, Mm-hmm. Um, that he's doing all that, then maybe there's just not as much left for, for uh, um, you know, efforting on the defensive end. And since he's 19 and a rookie and did, doesn't have a, a great base to work with because obviously his physical abilities have allowed him to never have to, um, you, you know, there's he hasn't learned how to uh, rest on defense in non-damaging ways. You know, it's kind of like, like, you know, when when Harden is is was a like a, a train wreck of a defender, he was standing around, but he was standing around in a way that he was just completely not impacting the play. Right. And when he when he was just a little bit more attentive, and just okay, I'm not going to move, but I'm at least going to be in a spot where I'm helping a little bit. Uh, then he became just from you know disastrous to just bad, and kind of that's where. Yeah, some of that, even if Zion has to be rest some on defense, figuring out how to rest productively is is key. It's key, you know, like in that sense of of finding those pockets of rest. That's something I think LeBron's really good at in general is in games finding moments where he can steal a a, a possession and, and and get some rest for a second here and there. And that's something I think obviously comes with more experience and time. But I'm also afraid of building bad habits, right? And, and you know, again, it's still really early in his career and, and all that. But it is something that, that just like – it just doesn't feel right to me when I watch it. No, and I think that's, you know, especially if you're looking at how they are going to build as a team. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, assuming they're going to, you know, resign Ingram to, to a max or near max uh, deal – um, they for the best version of their team, it's kind of going to need to have Zion able to play a lot of five. He cannot be a productive five uh, at this level of of rebounding and rim protection. It it just you know he just can't do it. Right. Well. So, but the other thing is that they need him to play five because of how dangerous their offense is going to be when he plays the five. So yeah, I mean that defense has got to get up. For yeah. for this team to hit anything close to its ceiling, right? There's no point if 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 offensively you're great, but you're giving up everything or more right. on the defensive end. It's like, all right, well, what was the point? <laughs> I mean, that's just like like that that pathway may, just makes him like the the super luxury version of like Ennis Cantor, which you know I think that would be a, uh, it's fair to say that would be a disappointing uh, outcome for 
for for Zion. I don't know. You just made Ennis Cantor's day, though. No, it's the, the luxury <laughs> yeah, version. Yeah, oh I get God, like, you know. The, it, Listen, if, him being mentioned I mean, just in the in the name of Zion, he should feel great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, somebody asked on uh, on Twitter the other day about this, and and Seth, I, I really liked where you took the conversation, so I wanted to talk about it here. How much is scoring increased since the shot clock? You know, changed from resetting to 24 seconds to 14 seconds on offensive rebounds. Have you noticed a difference? I think we've talked so, about this. Like, I, I yeah. was coaching in Europe when FIBA made the change and going into that season, I was dreading it. But man, I like our offense exploded with it. So, on a, I don't think it has a lot to do with the per possession scoring numbers. I think it probably ticks like possessions per 48 minutes, where, you know, the traditional pace stat. I think it probably ticks that up a touch in terms of it, it does the the value of an offensive rebound has actually dropped slightly I, I noticed this looking into this kind of over the course of of last season you know relative to a a normal half court possession an offensive rebound possession is still more valuable it was just slightly less valuable um the 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 points for possession uh, points for chance on an offensive rebound play had held pretty constant but the overall offense on every half court play had risen and so it wasn't as it was about a point or two per hundred worse relative to a normal possession which makes sense i mean you're you saw a sharp increase in the in the proportion of of plays that started with an offensive rebound that went into like the last five seconds of the shot clock which you know you can there's a fairly sizable drop off in in shooting efficiency and kind of the in, in like late clock situation so like stands to reason that the get a rebound, put it back. Obviously, those didn't change much at all. But all of a sudden, you get a rebound, kick it back out. And you're playing something. against the clock. Yeah, right. you're playing against the clock now pretty quick. And so that we did see, I think we have seen a little bit. And it's again, it's a minor change. It's offensive rebounds are still kind of free money, but it's a minor change in in the value of them to the negative. I mean, they're still valuable, just in the in yes. the sense of it. Like the yeah, because I saw we saw somebody respond. Almost kind of trying to knock down the value. Right. It was like no, 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 no. Well, it's just less valuable than it used yeah. to be. That's I mean, it. the so the this is something that I've spent a ton of time on and not really come up with good answers for yet. Is is like the the the, uh, the value of going for offensive rebounds versus transition defense. My intuition is that the NBA as a whole has gone too far towards defensive rebounding or towards right. defensive floor balance. Uh-huh. Um, but it's really hard to tease out kind of where and how they could teams could be being more aggressive on offensive rebounds. Once you really start to dig into it, yeah, um, it's not just a, oh go for more rebounds. It's very like offensive rebounding turns out to be uh, very situational in terms of of both uh, how likely you are to be able to contest an offensive rebound and how likely you are to uh, give up you know a transition opportunity. Uh, based on kind of where you are, where the shot's from. Um, and generally speaking, teams uh, teams and players do a pretty good job of making those decisions right. So it's actually hard to study uh, what what like bad offensive rebound decisions look like, what over-aggressive offensive dis- rebounding decisions look like, because teams just don't make those anymore. So it's, it's, or, so it's really hard to... It, it, it's one of those things that the more you study it, you you're left with with questions rather than answers. Every layer you go deeper, and well, and with the increased three point shooting, yep. offensive rebounding, like the the rebounds are longer, and so it's more risky if you don't get the rebound. So that's so 
that is that is something that I think has been relatively debunked. Um, really? Or, I, I yeah no the, uh, the the so three pointers long rebounds yes. Uh, uh, rebounds leading to more transition opportunities on three pointers, especially above the break three pointers. No, uh, that's well, actually, but that's because teams get back in transition, right? I mean, because right. you're, I mean, you're, because you're, you're, you're in. You're, I mean, you're in floor. I mean, you're not gonna, you're never gonna crash the boards if you're, you know, standing at the, at the, you know, at the, in the slot or something when the shot goes up because that's, you know, right. That's, it's, that's something it's a like dumb it, move. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like something Zach Levine did earlier, early in his career, a lot, and then like, oh wow, they got a breakaway again. How'd that happen? Well, yeah, you, you tried for a tip dunk from the <laughs> from starting from twenty seven <laughs> feet from the basket, right? And well, the the funny thing though is I have seen a rise in like some of these guards running in and keeping plays alive, getting those offensive rebounds. Like I've seen Patrick Beverly do it a ton for the Clippers, and and it's really paid but off. But where is he coming from? Oh, I mean, he's coming in from like the top. Like he's coming in. Is he? Yeah, okay. no, he's coming in from all over the place. Um, another guy for the Bucks, and I can't. Don't ask me where he's coming from because I can't. I couldn't give you a lot of good answers in terms of it. But you know, I've I've noticed it from Dante Divincenzo when I'm when I'm watching games a little bit. You know, the Bucks. Obviously, I've seen the Clippers much more and up close. Yeah. Um. So, but like I've seen it from him too. You can tell me if I'm wrong with with the no. Dante. I think, but I think he's coming. I think he's coming like like working along the baseline kind of thing. So he's not. He's coming from and that and that's sort of what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm in the corner, so I can either sprint back on defense or I can attack the offensive rebounds. That's a different. That's a different calculation, I think, than like I'm I'm at the top of the key. Uh, just in terms of where everyone else is and how likely I am to, you know, get in the mix, um, and and again, I don't. This is this is something even working with the very detailed tracking data is uh, is is hard to suss out. Oh, uh, that's. I mean, yeah, and I. But I think that's like the next frontier, you know, like in terms of an edge. Because I agree with you. I think we've gone. Teams have gone too far into getting back in transition and and not going for offensive boards as much as they could. I think there's an area where teams can start to to exploit that. I think that's a the a, a, a new frontier that teams could start. I don't know if it's a new frontier. I guess we've been it's been happening before. But, you know, an area where teams can get back into and and might be able to take team take advantage of before it becomes the new trend, right? But at what percentage does a team need to offensive rebound for it to actually be worth it? to fundamentally well, alter your defensive scheme sort of depends by team and and their offensive ability a little bit but you can coming up with the equation for how many offensive rebounds you need to get per extra transition opportunity you give up that's a fair that's that's a reasonably straightforward calculation mm-hmm. um it depends on uh, on team i want to say out Again, I this is something that I've I've worked on in the past. And I don't have the numbers in front of me. Every offensive rebound is worth a couple more uh, transition opportunities. It's one of those things you look at. Oh, point fast break points allowed, but you have to actually look at the marginal points allowed. So if if you know you if you give up you know eight uh, ten fast break chances and give up eighteen points, oh we gave up eighteen fast break points, but you gave up eight extra points is is more what you have to is more what you're looking at and then you by attacking the offensive boards did we gain or lose more than than the, the those the, those eight points and that's figuring out the 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 probabilities of that become very uh uh difficult because it's not a, it's not really a universal thing it's almost you have to look at it almost on a shot by shot basis and then that becomes very difficult to implement 
So you have to come up with some sort of like heuristics, okay? Kind of a shot from this area. If you're in that area, then you can go for a board. Um, and that's as close as I've come to it. But even that is is uh, kind of squishy and unsatisfying. Could a team paint the... Uh, oh, yeah, that was nerdy. Um, <laughs> hold, I got another question. I just, just real quick. Let me ask yeah. this one to Seth. We saw teams paint the their practice floors in terms of three point shooting areas, right? And and, and, and right. spots. Can right. we add another color and start doing offensive rebounding areas? Is that something we think is gonna? Oh man, think we could start. We're gonna start getting to. Um, maybe though. Again, it's 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 just it's the, it's where you are and where the shot is from. Yeah. So that so it becomes very too much calculus you know, different. involved. Yeah, and, but yeah, yeah, you feel like on average that NBA players have pretty good instincts for this, though. You you did say that, right? I, I mean, I, I yeah, I think I mean I think in general teams make. Uh, let's put it this way: that's the kind of thing a young a mistake a young player will make once, and then you know come sit down and <laughs> let's not do that again, kind of thing. Uh, so I'm uh, gonna gonna sit down with sam vicini and talk about his big board right after this but before we go to that uh the athletic has decided to do local ads because uh we we want to see our local businesses get through this time as you know intact as they can make it and uh mo you have a recommendation for everybody yes i do this is one of my favorite places in all of la uh it's very near and dear to my heart it's called gelateria Uli's. it's a gelato shop i mean you can't go wrong with it it's amazing um they opened up a place in downtown los angeles in the spring arcade they've opened up a second location on west third and crescent heights obviously if you're in la you'll understand those things um very hit very hard right now with with the covid19 and everything that's slowing down um but I just find it really important if we can try to support them. They have a GoFundMe uh, trying to keep everybody, trying to keep all their employees employed. On top of it, every every dollar you put in towards your GoFundMe is a uh, future gelato for you down the road. And on top of it, if you're in the LA area, you can get, they're, they're with everybody, Postmates, Caviar, Grubhub, DoorDash. Uh, reach out to those places. You can get delivery. They're doing takeout now. Um, but it's a really important thing to the community. Uli is, is, is a, a good friend of mine and she really takes pride in not just, you know, community action, but really taking care of the people that works for her. She always tries to find these, these people that can help sort of get them started and, and, and get them moving. So in this time right now, when everybody's hurting, if you're fully capable, I please, I ask you guys try to support Gelateria Uli's. You can find them on any delivery app at this point you can go online you can get a gift card and and use that to give to somebody else uh you can donate to their gofundme that's all money going to their employees and and she's trying to keep everybody employed in this tough time right now and and as we all can agree this is uh it's important to support all our local businesses and i'm really happy the athletic is uh pushing this right now yeah it's a it's a really cool thing um i thought it was a great idea when when I got the email about it. All right. What do you, so what are you guys going to do the next week? Have you, have you made plans? Are you going to watch any shows? I mean, I'm watching a ton of shows here. Uh, I just finished, <laughs> I, I just finished Ozark, uh, the new season of Ozark. I haven't watched it yet. I haven't watched Ozark at all. It, 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 listen, it's a little slow, but like you, it gets it. Stay with it. You got time. You ain't got nothing better to do. 
Um, yeah. I am actually, though, and this is a big pivot for me because I'm not a, a very good reader, um, as you guys could probably tell by how stupid I am on these pods. Um, I am diving into the book Playing for Keeps before the MJ doc drops. So I'm trying to knock that out before uh, April 19th, baby. That book, that book has some amazing stories. And I haven't read the book, but I see the stories pop up all the time. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but I know that have stories. No, nah, I don't really read sports books. I think we've talked about this. Uh, Seth, w- what about you? What's the next week looking like? Um, I'm uh, I've I'm kind of have gone back and have started to dive deep into uh, into like uh, synergy data, going back to like 2004. Just to, um, I'm I'm sort of this is a this is an interesting time to kind of really try to figure out what's going on with the style of play debate. And, and so it's, uh, you know, it's not just like how the game is played. It's how it was played relative to how it used to be played and, and how what's changed and why, and to try to really figure some of that out. And like, you know, I think that, that uh, my frustration with the style, with the quote style debate is that the claims often made by the people who aren't, aren't liking something, don't hold up to scrutiny in terms of what the, like what they're what they think they're seeing doesn't match reality. So I'm trying to figure out kind of what they're actually what what they might actually be seeing and reacting to, uh, because I think that if there if there's something you don't like about what you're watching, um, you know, even if you're not able to put the finger on it, like I think it is worth uh, worth you know exploring what that is because as a you know, as we're all missing the entertainment of, of entertainment product, I mean, if, if something is aesthetically displeasing to fans, then that uh, that reaction is due, you know, some deference, even though even if they're not like perfectly identifying what it is they don't like. So I'm trying to see if I can figure that out a little bit. Can we get a, a date for you to report back? As to what you learned, can we get <laughs> this is your this is your homework? Can we give you what, what do you need a, a month? What, what how much time? Well, I mean, I I mean, I'm hoping to have the first article about it out of, about it this week. Okay, so it's it's probably gonna like there's enough there that it's probably like there's 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 many things to say, but uh, yeah. Um, so I think I, I mean I have a pretty good I have a pretty good handle on kind of uh sort of what's happened and it's not you know i th- i think the 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 story that it's going to be told is not uh is is not surprising to anybody though it is it is interesting how uh if i can like preview that a little bit that um you know there's there's sort of two ways that an offense can score it's like the guy with the ball does something or the guy with the ball does something for someone else and even though the kinds of things that are happening on both sides of that have changed over the last you know, 15, 16 years, it's still about 50-50 in NBA offenses. Whether the guy with the ball is doing something or he's doing something for someone else. Um, and I, I just think that's, that, that, that is interesting. And it's just sort of the, the you know, the post-up has gone away. The, the ISO has gone down a little bit, but the pick and roll has gone up. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, uh, it, just in terms of, of frequency, so um, I, there's a lot there to dive into, and and yes, we will. I'm sure we will talk about it again. <laughs> I uh, I look forward to Seth saying that we need to bring back a legal defense to revive the post up. No, no, I will not be saying that. You say that you say that now, but this is going to be a hell of a plot twist for the nerder fans in a, <laughs> in two months. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, guys. I mean, I, I'm, and then and then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna advocate for you know spotting up at 17 feet and uh, 
you're gonna wonder what what host is is inhabiting my body now. I can't wait for, for the heel turn. Westworld people, <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. All right, and uh, now I'm gonna talk to Sam Vicini. Joining the show to go over his brand new 2020 NBA draft big board 4.0, Mr. Sam Vicini. How's it going, Sam? It's going good, you know? Uh, I think you're busier now than you were when there were actually games happening. Oh, no, that's 100% accurate. It's not even close because typically the way that the draft cycle works is that there's like a staggered finish line for everyone, right? So, right. uh you know, the kids that don't make conference tournaments get done and then kids get eliminated during conference tournament season and then the NCAA tournament season and the NIT happens and then the EuroLeague season uh, ends in May, right? So everything is a different timeline and it ends up being staggered and you don't have as much going on this year. Everything just quit at the same time. Right. So it ended up creating a backlog of everything. Plus, you know, our... Uh, you know, I think our beat writers need some content, so they're certainly a little bit more interested in the draft than what they typically would be. So, yeah, it's just a it's a crazy time of year right now. Absolutely. All right. So this draft, I mean, for four years now uh, has, has essentially been considered a down draft. Um, yeah. And and reading through your big board, it certainly feels like you agree with that. Uh, I do. Yeah, I think it's a worse draft at the top, certainly. Uh, than what we've seen in the last five years. It's a worse draft throughout the lottery. I think there's a chance that there's some reasonable depth, like once you get into the second round, but it depends on who stays and who goes, right? Like, I don't think we have any indication yet on how these kids are going to go. And if, in all honesty, I think we have real indications that uh, kids might be a little bit more risk averse this year, if only because there is no pre-draft, uh, you know, world this year with workouts and with the combine and with everything else due to the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, I'm not a fan of this draft. If I was a team at the top and there was a team that was willing to pay a premium for one of these picks, I would happily uh, be willing to move out of this draft. Do you feel like a lot of the lottery talent is high end role players, uh, you know, league average starter types? Oh man. So it's funny. Like the guys at the top, I think, are a little bit like higher upside, lower floor mm -hmm. types. Like LaMelo Ball, I think LaMelo's floor is a little bit higher than what other people do, but there are other people out there that think like LaMelo Ball's floor is a backup point guard. Well, that was my and, big that was my big shock when I looked at your your big board was him number 1. Just for a guy with the flaws that he has, uh, to be at the top of the list w was pretty jarring for me. Well, let's uh, let's finish. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about like the depth, and we'll yeah. talk about Lamelo because I think Lamelo is probably the most important thing to get to. Mm -hmm. um, like Anthony Edwards, like there's a world where Anthony Edwards is you know a multi-time All Star. There's a world where Anthony Edwards is something similar to Dion Waiters, like a more athletic Dion Waiters, maybe. Like James Wiseman is a center, right? And centers the cliff falls pretty substantially right like it's a steep cliff and it's a steep rise right um obi toppin has real defensive concerns uh i think his floor is probably a little bit higher because he's so skilled as a big man and so athletic but you know uh, what happens if cole anthony is just a scorer that where the passing instincts that i've seen at lower levels and that other scouts have seen at camps haven't necessarily translated to the nba level so i think the guys at the top are higher ceiling, lower floor guys. And then you look at, you know, the 
post top half of the lottery types, I think I have personally focused a lot of my energy in finding the guys that I think do have a very high chance of being good role players at the NBA level. Like Tyrese Halliburton, I think has a good shot to be like a starter. That's your fourth best player on your team. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Devin Vassell, I think has a great chance to be a starter who is your fifth offensive option and your best perimeter defender. Right. Uh, you know, Tyrese Maxey is a guy that I think will shoot it, but his athleticism makes him a little bit less of a creative force than what his potential we thought was at lower levels, right? Sadiq Bey is another three and D guy. Like these guys are just out there and I'm trying to pinpoint guys that I think will play in the NBA, but it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit hit or miss, I guess is the way to put it at the top. Yeah. Well, when I've talked to teams, one of the big concerns is just that with the rookie scale contracts, you're not going to get the same amount of value in year three and four, which is when, you know, the high end, you know, top Absolutely five type rookies right. really start to show like that's where you really make your money on those picks. And you're just they're not expecting that out of these guys. And so, as you said, I wouldn't be surprised to see teams trying to get out of the top five. Yeah. And for context on that, you know, Anthony Edwards or LaMelo Ball or James Wiseman, whoever goes number one overall, the team that gets that pick is going to have to hand that person basically a four year, $46 million contract or so. That's a pretty big contract for a kid that right. uh, there's some level of uncertainty about. Like the number five pick, I think, is something like four years, 27 million. You know, that that's not mid-level exception money, but it's still enough to where if you miss, it is a bit of an anchor on your cap sheet. So I totally agree with you and the executive you've spoken with that there is – a higher risk factor due to the fact that the rookie scale is rising commensurately with the salary cap. Yeah. And, and again, you pay those first two years of the higher salary for, for any of these rookies, because you know, you're going to make it up year three, year four uh, with these guys, I guess it's just a question mark. All right. Now let's talk about LaMelo because we all have seen the passing highlights and, and in, in your, in your piece today, you had a really nice highlight reel. The feel is clearly there. But what yeah. about the skill? Where is the shooting? Where is the defense? You know, these things that, that are the big question marks for LaMelo. So let's start on the positive end in terms of the skill. The passing is definitely a skill. And I think that the bigger part of the passing that often goes underrated is the fact that you have to be able to create the passing angles, right? You have to be able to get separation. You have to be able to collapse the defense. And LaMelo Ball can do that. His shiftiness, his ability to change pace, his ability to, you know, explode in and out of his moves. He's incredibly shifty in a way that the best guards in the NBA are. He is capable of creating separation in such a substantial way. Uh, to me, that is the most important skill for a lead guard is being able to get that separation, being able to uh, collapse defenses in the way that he's capable of. The shooting, he has displayed strong levels of touch. You watch him, he has very he has a very strong floater game. Uh, his shooting improved throughout the course of the season in Australia. He's definitely not there yet, though, yet as a shooter. And you and I specifically, I think on this podcast, if not one of your older podcasts, have spoken at length about the importance of physical strength in regard to shooting 
in regard to the ability to repeat your mechanics over and over again as you get run down over the course of a college season, an NBA season, et cetera, right? With LaMelo Ball, he's a kid that has grown something like four, five inches over the course of the last two years. And I think he's still growing into his frame. Like Lonzo, he was six foot five from the time that he was like 15 years old, right? LaMelo, the growth spurt happened later. And I think that his frame is going to continue to fill out just a little bit later than some of the other guys that we've seen over the course uh, of the draft. And I think that as that happens, the shot is going to work itself out because it looks like right now it's kind of all coming from the arms, right? Like right. you would be able to break this down as well as I could probably better than I could, to be honest. And whenever you watch it, it's just like, Oh, he's not really getting his lower half involved. The lower half's flying everywhere. I think that as he gets that sense of lower body strength and gets a more stable base, it's going to be able to, to lead him to more shooting success in the future. Yeah, it's all upper body. It's it's a classic case of of shooting too deep before the strength was there. I mean, it, you know, I see this all the time with younger kids where they want to chuck the three, and and in particular the ball kids wanting to chuck the thirty foot three without right. having a you know the strong base involved and and poor mechanics just come out of that. It's it's doing what you have to do to get the shot up. Um, but right again, the in, touch in, is there. In, yeah. in LaMelo's case, particularly, he was that ball kid that was doing that. And as he's gotten stronger, you have seen the mechanics improve. Like from the time he was 15 until the time that he's 18 years old. Now they are much cleaner, which is saying a lot about how far they've come. Right. And mm -hmm. how bad they were to begin yeah. with. But they really have taken a pretty substantial leap in a real way that make me think that he is still on a positive trajectory, even if the results aren't there yet. So the bigs in this draft are actually interesting to me because they're, they're not, you know, it's not like a Deandre Ayton type big, a guy that projects to be, you know, potential all NBA center, uh, maybe right. make a few all-star teams, but you know, I, I've seen James, James Wiseman in, in person and watching him run. It's just like this guy was built to play basketball. Yeah. So why isn't the physical part translating or at least why isn't it popping for, for scouts in particular? Nobody trusts this guy. Nobody I talk to trusts this guy <laughs> to be an NBA player. Well, everyone thinks he'll be an NBA player. But but it's, I mean, yeah, worth, what worth level, a top right? three pick. Yeah, right. Um Everyone believes in the physical tools and is hoping that the rest of it comes along, right? Uh, he is a really smart kid. Uh, I was told that he had like a 3.7 GPA at Memphis in their first semester before he decided to leave. Like he is a kid that is clearly mature and understands he's not going to be a screw up. You know what I mean? Right, like he has right. a good head on his shoulders. Yeah. There is a concern about the way that he processes information and then reacts to it in a quick way. Uh, just stuff like, does he get overwhelmed on the court a little bit? Uh, I think that early in his career, he got overwhelmed with just the physical differences of guys being able to get up under him and push him out of position, right? Uh, later in his high school career, he put on strength and put on weight 
And when he would go vertical as a rim protector, it would be exceptionally difficult to stop him. It would be exceptionally difficult to knock him out of his airspace. And he basically put a lid on the rim. So the way that I'm kind of talking about him to people is I don't really think he's like this creator. He, I think he kind of fashions himself as like an Anthony Davis, um, you know, Pascal Siakam, Giannis Antetokounmpo type creator. I personally haven't seen that ability in his game. We'll see if maybe, you know, he just wasn't in the right situations or what the deal was. But I don't see that kind of athletic burst. Uh, I see the fluidity. I don't see the burst. So what I've been saying is that I think his impact is going to be something similar to like a slightly better version of Miles Turner in that Miles Turner was one of the five best defensive players in the NBA last year. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think that Wiseman is going to be that. Now, on offense, I think he's going to be a good pick-and-pop trailer three-point spacer Mm -hmm. as well. I do think he's going to shoot it at some point. Where I think he's going to be a little bit better than Miles Turner is he has a much bigger catch radius, a much bigger, uh, a much better pop from his lower half. So I think he's going to be able to be a better lob threat. Like it's almost going to be like if Clint Capella could also step out and shoot threes. Yeah. He's such a natural athlete. Right. So that guy, I think that there are different takes among front offices. If that guy is worth a top three pick in this draft, I I think it all depends on how you value the center position. Some executives I talk to, they're just like, look, we think we can find a reasonable approximation of that in free agency for $5 million a year. Right. And, and it, it is the center is the running back of the NBA. Right. Yeah. Some, but some other executives are like, you know what, if he's that kind of difference maker, we think that it's harder to find those guys that can make that kind of impact for $5 million a year. And then you look at him in comparison to other players in this class. We would rather have that than take a flyer on, Cole Anthony or Killian Hayes. Right. Now, right? my understanding is that if Obi Toppin could play defense at all, he would be the top pick in this draft because offensively he's very gifted. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the thing that worries me with Toppin is the ability to drop his hips and be flexible mm-hmm. in defensive coverages. You know, it's basically always if he gets put on against a guard, he's going to have to turn and run to try and recover and contest, right? As opposed to being able to stay in front and keeping the shell of the defense uh, out of a scramble situation, right? Mm -hmm. So whether or not he can do that, I think is going to be the pivotal role or the pivotal uh, swing skill within his NBA career. Because if he can, if he can even get to the level that say, like I think John Collins has gotten a lot better laterally mm-hmm. over the course of his few years in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Um, if he can even get to that level, I think he's going to be a slightly better version of John Collins, basically. Is he good enough offensively to just be like Amari Stoudemire, where the the defense doesn't matter because the offense is so good? That's a tough question. I think that it's what I and a lot of NBA teams are wrestling with. It's ba- it's I think you can work around it, but the question is how difficult is it going to be to find a center to where you can work around it, right? Because right. the center will almost have to 
You need Miles Turner, essentially. I think you might even need someone. Yeah, like maybe maybe it is Miles. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's exactly who it is. It might be Miles Turner. It might be. Um, it has to be someone that can shoot, though. I think because right. the whole idea of Obi Toppin is, you know, a guy that you can hopefully slide down to the five a little bit for like 10 minutes a game, but mostly you're playing next to a true rim protector that can also space the floor and can also play five out. Like it's like, I'm trying to decide, like if I think Brooke Lopez is even mobile enough to be able to oh, do Brooke, it, like it, it well, has Brooke to Lopez be someone is that's a, incredible though. Brooke Lopez is really good with short area quickness. His brain is mobile and that's the most his important part of his game brain and his reactivity. And Robin's the same way, by the way, I think Robin had a really underrated season off the bench. Oh, yeah. Milwaukee this year. Um, it, it's the same deal with both of those guys, right? Their brain is just, you know, the most important part of how they react to things that are happening around them. But if you're playing that like shell defensive style that Milwaukee plays where Brooke is playing drop coverage every time and then using his short area quickness to wall off the paint, essentially, or just like uh, has to absorb the contact because he's so physically strong. I just worry about teams being able to get pull up jumpers a little bit more easily if you can run something like a four or five screen and roll with some of these bigger wing creators like a. Kevin Durant, a Pascal Siakam, a, uh, you know, you can go down the line. LeBron James obviously is the best example of this, right? Like, I think it's just mm-hmm. going to be harder for those teams to deal with it unless you have a super mobile center next to top and they can also protect the rim. Yeah. And then the the other center who, who really stands out uh, and that people are constantly showing me film of is a Kongwu from USC. It feels like he just blocks everything. Yeah. He's the way I've been kind of explaining him to people is imagine if Montrez Harrell could also be like a super high level potential defender in the case of a Kong Wu, where I think people have a little bit of questions is he is going to be an undersized center, mm-hmm. right? Like he's going to be six foot eight and a half, six foot nine with a seven foot one wingspan, but his sense of timing is great. He plays with real force. Like, I think that physical strength and the ability to absorb contact around the basket is one of the most underrated skills in today's NBA. And if you look at the Clippers and you look at Montrez Harrell's protection numbers at the rim, they actually aren't that bad. The problem with Montrez is coming from the weak side, typically, as opposed to whenever he's involved in the primary action. He can actually absorb contact and be a pretty useful rim protector at times. In the case of Kongwu, I think he's actually really fluid as a mover. I think he pays attention on the weak side at a high level. Um, And I think that you're going to be able to even switch one through five when he's on the floor because his flexibility throughout his hips uh, and his ability to move laterally is quite strong for a center, at least. On defense, I think he's a very, very strong player. On offense, it's just, okay, he's basically a rim runner who can put the ball on the deck a couple of times, but is mostly just a really cerebral lob catcher. So how effective is that going to be? You almost certainly have to surround him with four shooters or else you're going to struggle to space the floor on offense now. Uh, and then you you talked about Trey Jones uh, quite a bit, and uh, you compared him to Kyle Lowry. So how does Kyle Lowry go 20th in a draft where uh, – and I know that it's not a one-for-one comparison – But do you think there's a chance a guy like Trey Jones could slide up where it's just like high floor? We know what we're going to get. At worst case, it's a high-level backup point guard. And maybe you just say, listen, we'll just eat the cost for a few years, and and this is just the safer pick? 
Yeah, so the way that I explained Trey was I think that he is early career Kyle Lowry before Kyle got the pull-up jumper down, mm-hmm. right? Because if you remember at Villanova, Kyle was not a shooter at all. At all. And then early in his career, he was a guy who would take the occasional three, but was for the most part a guy that was making the incredibly intelligent, smart decision and playing just bulldog defense all across the court, right? So I think that that's what Trey Jones is. He's early career Kyle Lowry when Kyle was like the 30th best point guard in the league, right? Now, the thing with Kyle is Kyle got exceptionally good at shooting pull-up jumpers. I don't know that that development cycle is reasonable or can be expected for a normal player. Having said that, it's an outcome that I think exists for Trey Jones because he got a lot better at shooting off the catch this year. And he is known as a really hard worker at the very least. So whenever I say this, like, I don't mean to say like Kyle Lowry should go 20th in this draft. I mean to say like, look, early career Kyle Lowry was very different than mid and late career. Right. 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 Having said that, I do think that in general, Teams in this draft are probably going to be a bit more risk averse than what we've seen in the past for a couple of reasons. First, they don't really have a great way to bring players into their facilities and really get to know them and really feel like they have uh, a strong sense of who a person is and be able to convince themselves that, you know, some of the intel we got might not be super great, but we've met him, we trust him, and we believe that we can create an environment and foster a developmental situation that helps him reach his ceiling. The second part I think is the medical record portion of this, which no one really knows what that's going to look like yet. Like NBA teams are semi worried that they're going to be flying, you know, somewhat blind when it comes to medical reporting. Now they'll probably ask for some from agents and the what the players that have very favorable medical uh, reporting will certainly give that to teams, right? And be like, hey, he has the all clear. But as you and I both know, teams tend not to be super trusting either, right? right? Like they're not going to take this uh, without like a, you know, rock-sized grain of salt, right? So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how the medical reporting aspect of all of this plays into the risk aversion that teams uh, often show. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then... Um Last question. Kenyon Martin Jr. Interesting. Entering the draft. Okay. Like re- was able to reclassify because of his post-grad year at IMG. Uh, you think a team takes him in the second round or is he a likely uh, undrafted free agent guy? For people who don't know, Kenyon was like a very clear three-star recruit coming out of high school last year. And decided to just do the prep year at IMG and then was always going to declare for this draft. From what I've been told from scouts, I've watched a little bit of tape. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I am personally an expert on Kenyon Martin yet. I haven't watched enough to feel super strong, but I've watched enough to have like a preliminary take on it. Yeah. Right. And teams have noted to me that the athletic pop and the athletic growth that he has shown from last year to this year is very substantial. And he is now probably one of the better athletes in this draft. He has great defensive potential. 
He moves his feet really well. He has great physical strength. He has um, smart rim protection instincts for a person that is six foot seven or so, six foot six, six foot seven. How does that translate to the next level? It's essentially going to have to be in a very similar role to what his dad translated as, right? And became at the end of the day with him just being, you know, I think of him always as Denver's like defensive stopper, right? Right. I think that that's going to have to be the case. If he's willing to agree to a two-way contract off the bat, I think there is a real chance he gets drafted in the second round based off of what I've been told by NBA teams. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, because again, the last time I I saw anything from him, it was that that last year of high school and there's just not a lot of interest. Yeah, it didn't. He didn't look real close based off of last year. And there was a lot of, um, I don't want to say like people were like laughing about it, but there was like, there was some consternation about like, okay, what is, what is Kenyon and what is his son doing in this situation? Like, right. What are they thinking doing it this way? Unrealistic expectations. There was a thought that there was some unrealistic expectation, Yeah, but you know what? He, they must've known somehow that like he was a late bloomer and that the athletic leap was coming because he is legitimately like a very real um, NBA athlete at the very least and does play hard in the way that can portend very real defensive success at the NBA level. I still don't think he's anywhere near the level he needs to be offensively, but defensively and in terms of motor, I think you can make a real case if he's willing to agree to it on NBA teams a side of it, right? Like he has to agree to a two way off the bat. Right. I think otherwise uh, it's just not going to be of amazing interest. Like, I don't think anyone's going to want to give him a guaranteed deal off the jump. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe he goes to the right situation and, and uh, you know, things happen either way. It's going to be interesting. Uh, as soon as we know more as far as the combine and, when the draft is going to go, I'm sure uh, you'll come back on the show and we'll we'll talk some more. And by then, I'll have a chance to actually do some film work on on a lot of these guys. <laughs> you'll be able to yell at me; it'll be great. Oh I yeah, I can't wait to disagree with you. Uh, you know for sure, but have an educated disagreement. Um, and I think Tyrese Maxey has a good chance of being the best pro out of the guys you've got in the lottery. That that guy Ooh. is going to shoot. He's going to shoot. That's what I know for sure is that he's going to shoot that he's going to shoot it. Yeah. And and I think that that's just going to matter so much for his career. The way that I've been explaining him to people is like, he's this weird hybrid of Donovan Mitchell in terms of approach and in terms of like being hyper intelligent and being creative with ball in hand. Mm -hmm. But instead of having like Donovan's athleticism in freaky length, he's like, kind of has Josh Hart's like athleticism and body. Right. How does that work? He's probably going to fall somewhere in the middle of those two, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a really effective NBA player. It's just where does he fall in the middle of those two? Because he's a little small for for a, an off-the-ball wing. No doubt. Yeah, no and doubt. And that's, that's the one issue. So he's going to have to really, really shoot it. And I think he will. I think he's going to be – he's going to probably land somewhere around 40 41% three-point shooter. I That's really a, believe in his shot. I believe in it. I will say that the release point is very low, mm-hmm. which worries me a little bit. But it's fast. And it's fast. It's quick. It's very quick, but it's hard on some level. Like it is hard to get past the fact that he shot 29% from three, right? Yeah. I'm not that worried about it. Like, I, I think that there is a very, I, I believe in him as a shooter 
to the point where I think he's going to be like a 37% three point shooter. Yeah. Right. Like I'm not quite as high on it as you are, but there is like a downside outcome of him being something close to like a non shooter. I don't believe it. Anyway. All right, Sam, thanks for, (laughs) thanks for coming on the show. And uh, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more from Mo, Seth, and myself on Nerd She Wrote.